Well, good morning. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see uh, all of you this morning. If we haven't gotten the chance to meet yet, uh, my name is Aaron. I have the joy of getting to be a part of the, the team here at Wellspring. It's so good to see uh, all of you this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. But before we get into our text this morning, if you're a kid and want to hang out with some other kids, there's some amazing folks over to my left, over here on the back here. They would love to spend some time with you this morning. So feel free to make your way on that direction. And for the rest of us, we're going to be continuing in our series through the Old Testament. In particular, we are right in the middle of the book of Exodus. And today we're going to be looking at a fairly famous story, maybe one of the most famous in all of the Old Testament, this, the story of the Ten Commandments. And before we kind of dive into that, I want to just kind of start by uh, just talking a little bit about where I, I kind of sometimes see ourselves as a culture and kind of our own sort of moment. How many of you have heard kind of the saying or the phrase, Christianity is not about rules, it's about a relationship? How many of you have heard that before? How many of you have heard maybe, you know, the phrase, you know, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual? That one, right? These are some kind of popular phrases that are both, you know, said both inside and outside the church. And while I 100% get the sentiment and the reason and really the kind of the posture behind a lot of those phrases, I understand why people might say that. I've been thinking and wondering, have we perhaps overreacted at times? Maybe perhaps overreacted to kind of an aversion to rules and maybe even authority for perhaps good reason, right? There's been a lot of talk even recently about some of the abuses of authority in our culture. But for the most part, and I fully raise my hand on this one, we don't really like rules. I don't like being told what to do. How many of you can relate? Right? There's this kind of a funny thing that, that happens where I love reading I love reading theology books, but I've, it's this weird thing about me where if I'm told I have to read a book for like an assignment for school or something, it's all of a sudden, even though it might be like one of my favorite books, I don't like reading it because I'm being told I have to do something, right? Even if I'm not told to do it, I'll read like 10 other books that aren't even for like a class assignment because I, it's my choice. I get to do it for myself. I'm the one who's in charge and in authority, if you will. And as we come to the Ten Commandments, I think sometimes what happens is that we kind of just narrowly look at the Ten Commandments. Oh, here's God giving us some rules again. God telling me what to do. And sometimes the Ten Commandments are sort of, I don't know, perhaps experience with them has been sort of isolated. The Ten Commandments being isolated from really the rest of the narrative, the rest of the story of the book of Exodus. Whether we see them on a plaque or on a billboard or on a sign, they've kind of been taken out of their context. And we forget that the Ten Commandments are a part of an ongoing story that God has been telling, that God has been doing a work already with the people of Israel. And what I mean is this. Before we actually get into each of the Ten Commandments, it's important to realize simply what just happened before. Right? God has already rescued and saved his people. God has already met Israel where they are at in their oppression, or them being oppressed, and has saved them out of the bondage of the Pharaoh, and has delivered them, leading them through the Red Sea, showing them how powerful and how awesome and how he loves his people. 
how he is for them. The point being is this. Before Israel is given laws of instruction, they are already saved. They've already been rescued. See, sometimes we have this perception of Israel and the Old Testament of, oh, that's like all the laws and the legalism, and there's not really any grace there at all. And let me sort of just squash that notion that the Old Testament, and in particular God's relationship with Israel, is like anti-grace. It is completely the opposite of that. God has already rescued and delivered his people, and now is bringing his people to himself at the base of Mount Sinai. And by the way, this whole narrative of Israel being at the foot of Mount Sinai is going to take a whole calendar year in the life of the, of the, 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 the Torah. From, Genesis, or from Exodus 19 all the way through the end of the book of Exodus, through the book of Leviticus, in the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers, Israel is going to set camp at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God is going to meet with Israel, and as a loving parent would to a child, form and shape his people to become the kinds of people who are truly free. Not just free to do whatever they want, they want but free to become the kinds of people God has intended for them. So let me show you this from the text. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Exodus 19, or 20, but let's back up a chapter and begin in Exodus chapter 19 to kind of set the stage for what we often call the Ten Commandments. Again, this is the beginning of a year at Mount Sinai. God says this, Exodus 19, starting in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Notice that language. This, this, this language is all captured in this God who is bringing his people to himself. It starts with relational intimacy and connection with God. God's instructions flow from a place of being deeply tied to and intimately connected with, with God himself. I have brought you to myself, God says. Now therefore, notice the flow. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Again, this is language of intimacy and connection. God is saying to Israel, you will be my treasured possession, the most prized possession of all the peoples of the earth. For the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Again, notice the language. God is saying, I have brought you to myself. This is where it all begins. From relational connection and intimacy with God. It's not like God is some abstract authoritarian ruler up in the sky and just kind of made the world and spun it into existence and now is just going to arbitrarily start giving commands from a distance. No, that's not the frame that I want us to have. The frame that I think the scriptures are inviting us to have is more akin to a parent to a child. Prior to this, in the book of Exodus, God has already declared and has talked about Israel as being his son. This is parental language. And just like any good parent wants to instruct and teach and disciple their kids, so God is wanting to do that with Israel. Remember, Israel has been in bondage as a nation for close to 400 years. And they've developed habits and patterns and ideas about the world and ideas about what it means to be human that are not life-giving. They're contrary to the ways that God has. The, the, the teachings and the instructions that God wants to give are to lead Israel into the path of life, not into the path of slavery. Now, as we dive into the Ten Commandments, let me ask you another question. Because sometimes this word commandments, we kind of get hung up on a little bit. 
But Jesus used this phrase a little bit too. Jesus was asked at one point, hey Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Remember what Jesus' response was? Like any good teacher, he gives more than what he's asked. Instead of giving one answer, he gives two, basically. Right? Love God and love your neighbor. And as we look at the Ten Commandments, people way smarter than me have noticed a similar shape and pattern to the Ten Commandments. The first half or so kind of deal with that first part of loving God. And the second half or so, it's not exact, exactly half, but the second half or so kind of dealing with loving our neighbor. And that's sort of the frame that we're going to see as we dive into these sort of commandments. Now, that word commandment, here's a little interesting fact for you. The Ten Commandments are never actually called the Ten Commandments. They're actually called the Ten Words. Throughout, throughout the Exodus 20 and then that gets repeated in Deuteronomy. The, the, the Ten Commandments, we call them, they're actually called the Ten Words. Why is this important? Well, think about this. God is going to speak ten times to Israel in Exodus chapter 20. And if you're an ancient Israelite, you're going, hmm, God has spoken ten times before. All the way back on page one. Yes, it's seven days of creation, but God speaks ten times exactly on page one of your Bibles. And when God speaks, his, word bring, his words bring life. And so here, the frame is that as God is speaking again, speaking ten times again, this is God bringing life to his people. God bringing an act, we might say, of new creation for his people. And then here's another detail. Three times in, in Exodus chapter 19, we are told that all of this is going to happen on the, quote, third day. On the third day. Now, before we just kind of jump to Jesus real quick, is the third day an important motif in Scripture? You bet it is. And on the third day, on the first third day of the Bible, God spoke, and what happened? Trees and fruit and life come forth out of the ground. And on the second third day, which is the sixth day, God speaks and human life is created. Again, this motif of God bringing life on the third day starts all the way back on page one. Even as you kind of go forward in the Torah, in Genesis 22, that famous story of Abraham being told to sacrifice his son Isaac happens on the, quote, third day. Again, God bringing life, or in this case, preserving life. It's a key motif throughout the scriptures. And so on this third day, in Exodus 19 and 20, God's words are not to be seen as like this restrictive, you know, kind of, I'm going to clamp down on my people. No, these words on spoken 10 times on the third day are words of life, words that lead to life. So with that said, as I go through the Ten Commandments this morning, I'm going to not actually say the Ten Commandments. I'm going to call them the first word, the second word, the third word, because these are God's words that are meant to bring life. So starting with the first word, God says, well, let me back up. Verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of a place of slavery. Again, we see God reminding them what he has already done. What he has already done in saving and rescuing his people. And then we get to the ten words. Starting in verse 3. The, the first word. Do not have other gods beside me. Pretty simple. We're actually going to talk more about this even next week. Because we're going to look at the golden calf story. In Exodus 32 next week, and that's kind of the whole debacle of basically Israel not following the first and second words. 
But here we have verse 3, do not have any other gods beside me. Literally, what the translation in the Hebrew is, you shall not have any other gods before my face. And it's this idea of whenever we see this language of being in the face of God or God's face, it's literally talking about being in the presence of God. So with this idea, as there's an implication here as well, that one is in the presence of God. That one understands that one's life is to be in God's presence. And God is saying, in my presence, there shall be no other gods in, uh, around me. That this is a God that desires his people to have exclusive devotion to him. It's not simply just having like, oh, God's number one in my life and kind of having like a mental ranking of what's, you know, priorities aren't necessarily a bad thing. But I think it's, it's more wholesome than that. It's more of like a 360 of like, you look around your life and God kind of sees what's happening. Are there other things competing, allegiances that are kind of vying for one's attention? And God is inviting Israel to say, there shall be no other gods before my face or in my presence. Which really leads to, and it's intimately tied to the second word, starting in verse 4. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship them. Do not serve them. For I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God. Now, the second word throughout church history has kind of, I don't know, been a part of the of debates of are we to have like icons and statues and things to kind of help with worship. And while I want to not necessarily, you know, dismiss the importance of some of those debates, I don't actually think that's what the second word is talking about. Because as you keep going on in the story of the Exodus, God is going to have his people make statues and images that are going to go in the tabernacle. Things like pomegranates, like statues of gold with fruit and the, the cherubim that are going to go inside the tabernacle to help decorate. They're all going to be placed within the story of Exodus inside the tabernacle and later the temple. The key point or the key problem that God has with this particular image or idol is found in verse 5 where God says you are not to worship or serve these images or idols. The, the, the core sort of touch point, if you will, for the people of Israel is do not worship these things. You're to worship God alone, Yahweh alone. Now, Here's the thing, idolatry. Again, we'll talk more about this next week with the golden calf story a little bit. But just to kind of prime the, the conversation for today. There's a thing with idolatry where, yes, first and foremost, it is an affront and offense against God. God is creator. God is sustainer. God is the provider and giver of all life. And ultimately, to betray our allegiance and our loyalty to God is, yes, an offense to God. And at the same time, it's degrading to our own humanity as well. What do I mean? See, Israel is instructed not to make images and idols because why? God already has images of himself. You and me. Genesis 1, God created humanity in his image. Same word, same idea. Male and female, he created them. God already has images of himself in the world. Us as humans. Now, it's not to say that we're like divine or anything like that, but we are, as human beings, made in the image of God. And so what God is saying here to Israel, Israel, do not make idols. Do not make images and worship them. You are already made in my image. You already have this 
robust divine calling to represent me in the world, to show the world what God is like, to manifest and demonstrate the beauty and the goodness and the character of myself. That is a high calling. Do not degrade your own humanity by replacing your role in the world by inserting these other images or idols in the process. God cares about the human vocation and our human responsibility. But here's another aspect or, or idea to kind of throw out here with this one. See, sometimes, and I, I fall into this trap too, is I look at this story, I look at some of the idolatry stories in the Old Testament, I go, that's not what we deal with today. I don't know about you, I have yet to meet a person living in 2021 that has like an idol in their garage that they're just paying homage to or sacrificing to. Right? That's, that's not something we struggle with in that particular sense, but do we? Maybe it just looks a little bit different. I think as C.S. Lewis talks about this idea of chronological snobbery where we often look back at, oh, those ancient primitive people that did all these kind of weird idolatrous practices. Hold on a second. Might we just push in a little bit on this. We might think, oh, images and idols, that's a problem of the past. But if we're honest, we live in an age of image. We live in an age where images captivate our attention, or might we say our devotion and worship. The images on a screen create all sorts of fury and debate and angst. All our devotion and, and attention is given to certain images and ideas. We create all of these sort of technological tools, we call them. But then the images that come from these tools sort of make us a slave to them, that we orient our lives to whatever images are on these screens, kind of like Pavlov's dogs. Are we really free? And so to maybe just kind of bring some awareness to that, that perhaps we too live in an age where images and idols captivate. It might just look a little bit different. And the invitation of God here with the second word is, don't, don't let those things grab your attention and your devotion. It will lead you astray. It will lead you to places that don't lead to life. Which leads then to the third word. Now this one's an interesting one, starting in verse 7. God says, do not misuse the name of the Lord, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Now, most of you might be familiar with this, the, the other way that it's often translated, is do not take the, the name of the Lord in vain. How many of you are kind of familiar with that idea? You know, growing up in church, this, this sort of command or this word, if you will, was often sort of framed around this idea of, you know, don't swear, don't say, like, God's name whenever, like, your favorite quarterback gets sacked for the hundredth time in a game, right? That sort of idea, which I have that problem as a Seattle Seahawks fan. But here's the thing. Well, sure, I'm not trying to dismiss that idea at all. I think that's, there's, that's an important conversation to have. What's interesting, let me kind of throw this verse back on the screen, but in a more literal translation of exactly what is happening in verse 3. Verse three would, verse 7 would often say this. You must not bear or carry the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. For Yahweh will not hold guiltless the one who bears or carries his name in vain. Now, what does it mean to carry the name of God? That's, that's actually what the word is there. Oftentimes our English translations translate it as, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain, 
or speak the name of the Lord in vain, we, we just assume that it's referring to speaking. Because it's kind of hard for us to kind of talk about what does it mean to carry someone's name? How do you carry a name? Like I can carry like a backpack or a suitcase, but how do you carry someone's name? Well, as you keep reading the story in, in Exodus, this language of carrying the name keeps popping up actually. For the high priest in particular, Aaron and, and company, they are to carry the names of the 12 tribes on their sort of outfit, if you will. See, for the high priest, they had a very particular way to dress as they were to go into the tabernacle and later the temple. Unlike pastors today who just kind of wear like black t-shirts or whatever, there's a very specific outfit that the high priest had to wear. And as a part of that, you go read Exodus 28, great bedtime reading around the instructions for the tabernacle, and in particular the priests. One of the details you'll notice in Exodus 28 is that the high priests, as part of their outfit, are to bear or carry the names of the 12 tribes on their outfit. And what's going on there? It's talking about representation. That the high priest is representing the 12 tribes to God. And in a similar way, and I would even say in, this, in almost the exact same way, God is inviting Israel to bury or to, to bury or carry the, his name out into the world. Meaning this. It's not simply about not saying certain words in certain situations. It's about the whole of life. How we represent God with our whole life. How we carry the reputation or the, the name of God out in the world. To just limit it to, oh, don't say these words in this situation. That's too limiting. This, this word is an invitation that our whole life would be representing the character or the name. Both of those are often synonymous in the Old Testament. The name or the reputation of Yahweh. Now here's the thing. This leads into the fourth word. The Sabbath, the, one, the, the commandment or the word regarding Sabbath. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord Yahweh your God. You must not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male or female servant. Now, just kind of pay attention to all the people who are invited into the Sabbath here. Even your livestock are invited to Sabbath. Or the resident alien, meaning the foreigner, who is within your city gates. For Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days. And then he rested, or Sabbath, on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it to be holy. Now notice, this word is rooted in creation itself. And while sometimes modern Christians kind of have a little debate on, are we supposed to keep the Sabbath or not? Let's kind of set that aside for a moment. And just recognize the wisdom and the profound gift that Sabbath is to the people of Israel. That it's not just something for the elite and the rich to have rest. That Sabbath is a gift for everyone in society. Even the cows. Think about this. Coming out of 400 years of slavery, where there was no rest. Where there was no just taking a break, but it's ongoing 24-7, just slave driving. The gift that one day a week is to be delighted in and resting in God's presence. Enjoying the gifts, trusting God for what he has already done and what he's already given. Again, the entire household is invited to participate in this rhythm of grace. And I don't know if you've noticed this. For those of you who maybe practice some sort of Sabbath or rest. 
Sabbath actually takes quite a bit of work. The preparation that often goes into that, making sure things are in order, so that day or that moment, that space and time can be an act of enjoyment and worship in God's presence. Joseph Ratzinger calls the Sabbath the heart of all social legislation, meaning this, that it, it anticipates a society where, again, people of all socioeconomic backgrounds will one day enjoy the rest that God provides, and that we get to live that out now in the present. Again, Sabbath is not just something for the rich and the elite in God's economy. It's something that's given even to, according to the text, the resident aliens or the slaves. That God is inviting all of his creation, not just a few select. That's why Stanley Harawas says it like this, one day each week, Christians simply refuse to show up. And the gift that that can be. In a cultural moment that is fast-paced and busy has become one of the highest virtues. And it's this 24-7 rat race of keeping up with this and that and just going to one thing after the next. A, the gift of rest and delight is so needed for our souls and for our entire lives. Now notice this. I talked about this at the beginning, how the first half or so of the, the ten words are oriented and focused on this aspect of loving God. And then as we kind of transition into the second half, it's going to be focused kind of more horizontally around our relationships with other people. And so it's from a place of recognizing that only God deserves our devotion and our allegiance, that only God deserves our worship and our adoration. And from a place of rest, from a place of delight in his presence, that we then live out the rest of our lives horizontally to one another. And that's where... The fifth word comes in, honor your father and mother. Now, growing up in the church, this was an often quoted one, right? Honor your father and mother. The first commandment, Paul says, with a promise. Honor your father and mother so that you may have a long life in the land and that, that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, think about it in Israel's context. To honor your father and mother was, yes, of course, to listen to their instructions, but in particular, to listen to them passing down the faith, listening to them passing down the teachings of God, the stories of God, so that the generation after them would be anchored in the reality and the truth of what God has done, how God has redeemed and saved his people. That for the next generation to honor their parents was in context referring to honor how they are telling the story of God, how they are telling the story of redemption. Because what happens when the prior generation does not pass down the faith in the Exodus and into the rest of the Torah in the Old Testament, what happens? Disaster, sin, rebellion. You get to the book of Judges, and you get that kind of infamous line, everyone's just doing right in their own eyes because there was not a generation that told the next the stories and the acts that God had done. And so as God is inviting Israel to be a people who pass on their faith and that the children who receive that honor and respect those who have come before them. And I think this is a vital word, especially to those in my generation. Recognizing that, that we sometimes, I think for me and just sort of kind of the crowds that sometimes I'm around, we have this sort of, I don't know, aversion or distaste to tradition and things that have come before us. And I just simply want to push back against that, that new isn't always the best. 
that novelty isn't always all that it's cracked up to be. That we need, as especially followers of Jesus, to be a people that are rooted in the past. That our faith is an ancient faith. And that the people who have gone before us, brothers and sisters in Christ throughout, and I'm kind of expanding this a little bit, but throughout church history, have gone before us, have faced things that probably have been harder than that we're facing even today. And to recognize the wisdom that can be found in honoring those that have come before us. And not thinking that just what's new or flashy or cool is automatically the best thing. Which then leads into the, the, the sixth, seventh, and eighth words. They're kind of all, these three, six, seven, and eight, are kind of all grouped together. Why? Because each of these are actually just simply two words each. No murder, no adultery, no stealing. Kind of simple and quick and to the point. And we know how Jesus took each of these sort of three words. He understood that this was not just about behavior on the outside or modifying our actions on the outside. But Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, referencing, say, murder, for example, would say things like, hey, you're angry with a brother or sister. You've committed murder in your heart. You look at a woman lustfully. With lustful intent, Jesus says in Matthew 5, you've committed adultery in your heart. And so each of these commands, according to Jesus, is not simply just about what we see visibly on the outside, but actually matters of our own heart. And this gets at even as you continue into the ninth word. You must not give false testimony. This one, I think, really stands out when we begin to recognize the, the really the profound nature of what God is inviting Israel to here. You must not give false testimony. Think about it like this. In a day and age where there's no DNA testing, there's no video surveillance, there's no fingerprinting, there's no, like, you know, smartphone cameras that can capture things, someone's word, what they said about someone else or about a situation, meant a ton. Israel is called to be a society where what comes out of their mouths corresponds to the truth. And that society will crumble the moment our words do not match what is actually true. See, I think the ninth word especially is fitting for our social media age. We get inundated with rumors and innuendos, false accusations, and slander. People are tried and condemned by online lynch moms. We like and share things on Twitter and Facebook, even though we often can't possibly verify their accuracy. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, the ninth word requires us to put the best construction on everything, basically to give others the benefit of the doubt. But in our cultural moment, it's easy to exaggerate the stupidity or the malevolence or, the, or just the, the dumbness, if you will, of our ideological adversaries. And paint this amazing picture of look how good my tribe is or my ideas are and look how dumb and less than human that group, that political party, that agenda is. And oftentimes, and I don't say this like, this is everyone, including myself, right? Christians often fire up the digital kindling and burn supposed heretics on social media. And not really giving people the benefit of the doubt. Not being a people that, as James says, are quick to listen and slow to speak. See, as followers of Jesus, we are to be people that assume the best about one another. 
But do not rush and just say, oh, I know exactly who you are or what your reputation is. And just kind of label or whitewash people in groups. No, to, to not bear or not give false testimony implies, I think, and I think the scriptures would say too, thinking about James chapter 1, that we would be a people that are quick to listen to one another. In a cultural moment that is so divided, so polarized, so hard to get along with, even people within our own family at times. It's hard to take the time to simply sit down and say, let me hear your story. Let me hear where you're coming from. Why, why do you think this way in particular? And it's an act of love. It's an act, as Jesus would say, later on say, loving your neighbor as yourself. Because I think we would all benefit and appreciate someone doing that for us as well. But then this gets into the last word. You shall not covet. Verse 17. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not cover your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his ox, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, I don't know about you. I've never had a problem with coveting my neighbor's ox. Right? So what on earth? Like, sometimes, you know, you have these lines in here. Like, why did that get included in there? Right? That's very particular to those people, obviously. But again, like I was talking about with the images and idols sort of a thing, this last word is very interesting. Because here's the thing. I kind of breezed through the, the, the sixth, seventh, and eighth words, no murder, no adultery, no stealing. Those are very kind of quick, right? And those are often, especially in Israel's time, things that you can measure and see, right? Did you steal or not? You know, you get some witnesses, you hash it out. It's a very visible, tangible thing you can measure. Did you murder that person or not? Again, you need witnesses and all that sort of things you process, but it's a very outward act. But coveting. How do you measure coveting? Is there like a, a chart somewhere that you, you know, like, you know those like uh, those thermometer charts, if you like go above a certain threshold, ooh, you hit the coveting line. Like how do you actually measure coveting? And this is why I think Jesus got it right when he understood that these commandments were not just something about our outward, behavioral, external modification. These were actually matters of the heart. Coveting is something that can only be addressed, can only be discussed, can only be sort of God entering in and, and filling that space by addressing the matters of our heart. That our desires, our affections, how we not just behave, yes, that's important, but how we are on the inside. Jesus would say in the gospel, it's out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I would also say, too, it's out of the abundance of the heart we covet, we desire, we want this or that. And so as we think about this, as we think about these ten words for our everyday life, here's the, kind of where I want to perhaps land for us this morning. As we sort of think about all that God is instructing Israel to, these are ten words that are meant to bring life. Ten words that are forming and shaping God, God's people to become the kinds of people who are truly free. That are truly free to not just go back to their old ways, but to be people who are transformed from the inside out to live a new kind of life. You know, thinking about this, this past week, one thing that kept coming back to me was Psalm 1. Psalm 1 talks about the human who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates 
on God's laws or instructions day and night. And that person becomes like a tree planted by streams of water and bears fruit that, that grows and bears life. See, sometimes, again, in our modern context, we have kind of this opposite effect. Instructions, laws, those are restrictive. That's no fun. That's just kind of, you know, like really like limiting my, my enjoyment of life. But no, no, for the psalmist, for the poet of Psalm 1, God's laws and meditating on God's instructions was the pathway to life was the pathway into experiencing the abundance and joy that God has for us as his people. And to understand this, that yes, we cannot do this on our own. And the Old Testament prophets understood this, Jeremiah in particular. Jeremiah looks out and sees the landscape of Israel at his day and how they have fallen away. It's funny because in Exodus 19, on two occasions, Israel says, all these things that God has spoken, we're going to do them. We're going to nail them. Check. We promise to do our end. And the next story, which is Exodus 32, after a bunch more laws are given, the next story, they fail right away. Golden calf. We'll get to it next week. And so sometimes we have to be careful, too, of just kind of mustering up our strength. We're going to do this. We're going to achieve this. We're going to become the kinds of people that are, are, are just delighting in God's laws and obeying God and, you know, having this, like, idealistic version of what it means to be a follower of God. That is, we got to be careful there as well. Jeremiah talks about this new covenant that God was going to bring and that God has brought. That God, Jeremiah 31, 33, Jeremiah says, I will write my law on their minds and write it upon their hearts. Meaning this, that the transformation, that the work that God promises to bring for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that God would do a transformation so deep that we would become the kinds of people that not only do the right thing, but desire and want to do the right thing. And that's where true freedom is found. That's where true joy is found. Not the kind of person that begrudgingly, oh, I have to do this, I have to do blah, blah, blah. No, no, a person with joy and delight that delights in God's instructions because why? The Spirit of God has so touched and transformed that person's life. From the inside out, that God is doing a deep internal work in that person. And that person is growing and becoming not perfect. It's progress, not perfection. But becoming the kind of person that joyfully says yes to the things of God. That joyfully trusts in what, in what God says and what God instructs is for our flourishing and is for our good. And I get it. We live in a cultural moment that has an adverse reaction to authority that has an adverse reaction to rules and commandments. I 100% get that. But like I said at the beginning, perhaps maybe we've overreacted a bit. And perhaps what we need is to understand the character and nature of this God who has brought Israel to himself, that has already rescued and redeemed and saved them. And God is saying, trust me and my character, my goodness and my love for you, and that as I instruct you, as I give you my teaching and instruction, it is to lead you into paths of life, into paths of joy. Not to just take all the fun out of life, but to bring you true satisfaction. 
You know, so many people in our culture today are searching and wondering and asking questions, what is the good life? Where can I find true meaning, true purpose? You know, as Augustine said centuries ago, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And I think it's an act of grace when we come to those moments where we've exhausted all these different options and we've kind of knocked on every single door searching for meaning and significance and freedom and we come to that place like Peter does in John chapter 6. Jesus, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That God's words and God's instructions are for our life and for our goodness. And so for us today, as we kind of enter into a time of reflection and worship, let me just ask you one simple question. Where is the Spirit inviting you to trust God's Word? Perhaps as we went through those ten words, there was one in particular that perhaps stood out. Where it's like, oh, I get that it's in the Bible. I get, you know, why it's, it's good and true. But it's, that's a hard one for me to put into practice. That's a hard one for me to follow. And perhaps the invitation is a deeper trust and reliance on the goodness and character of God. That as we joyfully say yes to what God has, that it will actually lead to life and flourishing in his presence. And to remember at the exact same time, I want to invite the worship team to come up as well. That as we understand the nature of these ten words, God speaking these words of life over Israel, that it's only because of Jesus that we are able to enter into this relationship with God. It's only Jesus who is, the, who is the one who has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that we recognize that apart from the work of Christ in our lives, apart from the gift of his spirit, we are beyond hope, without help, without power to live this life. Growing up in the church, I'll end with this. There's this whole kind of aspect, again, with this commandment and the language around that. Where I grew up in the, in the, the Calvary Chapel family of churches, great heritage, love that, that upbringing. And a line that Pastor Chuck Smith would often always say is God's commandments are his enablement. And what he meant by that was simply that as God gives commands and instructions, he always gives us the power and his spirit to empower us to live those things out. That we cannot do this on our own. And I'll end even simply with this. 1 John 5, verse 3. This is the love of God. This is the love of God. We're talking about, ultimately, this is centered around loving God. This is the love of God. 1 John 5, 3. You know how the verse continues? That we keep his commandments. And then the verse keeps going on. So this is the love of God, 1 John 5, 3. That we keep his commandments. And the last line, the last phrase of that verse. And his commandments are not burdensome. That God's commandments are not burdensome. See, I think it's our modern culture that has this perception that commands and burden go together. No, commands and life, commands, God's commands, rooted in who he is, who he has saved us and delivered us in his character, not to earn God's favor. We already have God's love and favor. Keep that at the forefront. But as we say yes to God, it's to lift those burdens and to bring life in the life, abundant life, that Jesus said he came 
to bring. Why don't we stand and pray together? God, in your presence, we just ask for, for your help in all this. God, as we seek to live lives that honor you, would you, by the power of your spirit, enable and transform our desires, our hearts, that we would become the kinds of people that delight in your instruction. Not to earn your favor or love, but God, from a place of acceptance, from a place of knowing who we are in you. God, grant us the strength and the power and the perseverance to follow you. God, meet us where we're at, please. God, speak words of encouragement and love over us as we reflect on your word. We love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in your name.